Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 14. Last week, I covered the development of the Egyptian language, specifically focusing on their writing. Hieroglyphs, demotic, hieratic. Hopefully those words now mean something to you. This week, I'm devoting the entire episode on how we came to understand these languages, specifically on the Rosetta Stone. So let's get started. When the Ptolemaic Egyptian Empire fell to the Romans in 30 BC, the general understanding of the Egyptian language was lost, essentially not to be understood for close to 2,000 years. Actually, what was lost was the understanding of the meaning of the hieroglyphs. The understanding of hieratic and demotic gradually waned, being slowly replaced by Greek, then Latin and Coptic. The reasons for this were many, but remembering back to the last episode, recall that the Egyptian priest, while under the occupation of the Greeks, then Romans, purposely confused their language by adding symbols, limiting the teaching of it, and writing in more of a code. Prior to the uncovering of the Rosetta Stone, and its eventual decipherment, the ancient Egyptian languages of hieroglyphs and demotic had not been truly understood since the time of Roman occupation. Eventually, by the 4th century AD, the usage of the hieroglyphic script had become extremely limited. By this time, very few Egyptians were capable of reading them, let alone writing. The language had died. The use of the glyphs on monuments essentially ceased when Roman Emperor Theodosius I closed all non-Christian temples in 391 AD. Like I've mentioned before, the last known inscription is dated to August 24, 394 AD, and was found at Philae, and was known as the Graffito of Esmeticom. The loss of understanding would remain until a certain general grew a little greedy. Who? the one and only Napoleon. Actually, there was more than one man with the name, but that doesn't matter, at least not for this episode. Anyway, in 1798, the Napoleon Bonaparte arrived in Egypt, primarily on a mission to disrupt British trade with India. At that time, the Brits would ship Indian goods through the Indian Ocean and up the Red Sea to the Sinai Peninsula. From that point, the goods would be hauled overland the 120 or so miles, or about 200 kilometers, to the Mediterranean Sea. The Suez Canal would not be completed for another 71 years. Napoleon sought to strangle this trade with India, and holding Egypt would do the trick. Accompanying Napoleon on his expedition was a team of Egyptian researchers, Egyptologists, 167 of them, and they were known as the Commission des Scientists et des Arts. On July 15, 1799, French soldiers commanded by Colonel Hautpool were reinforcing the defenses of Fort Julian, which of course was the French name for the location. Anyway, it was a mile or two, so about four kilometers northeast of the Egyptian port city of Rosetta remember that port's name. The town is now known as Rashid. It was here that a lieutenant, Pierre-Francois Bouchard, spied a stone slab 
recently uncovered by the grunts in his command. What made this slab stand out were the inscriptions on one side. Both Bouchard and Hutpool recognized that this was no ordinary stone and immediately notified General Jacques-Francois Minou, who was stationed at Rosetta. Shortly afterwards, the uncovering of the stone was revealed to the Institut d'Egypt, Napoleon's recently established scientific association in Cairo. The announcement, written by Mikhail Lankret, only four days after its discovery, noted that the slab contained three different inscriptions. It surmised that the first inscription was hieroglyphs, and the third was Greek. It also supposed that the three inscriptions were versions of the same text. Time, and more importantly research, would prove those suppositions to be true. At that time, the language of the second inscription was unknown, but was suspected as being Syriac, the language of ancient Syria, in a dialect of Aramaic. While the announcement was occurring, Bouchard transported the stone to Cairo for a proper examination by scholars. None other than the dictator himself, Napoleon, inspected the stone within a month of its discovery. In 1800, the commission figured out how to make copies of the text on the stone. It was during this process that a printer, who also happened to be a linguist, Jean-Joseph Marcel, figured out that the second inscription on the stone was not Syriac, but was instead Egyptian Demotic script. You may be wondering why this revelation took the better part of a year. Well, up until that point, Demotic was seldom used for stone inscriptions. Like I covered in the last episode, it was more used for everyday writing. Also contributing to the slow discovery was that the academics of that time had rarely seen the language. About the same time, Antoine Galland figured out how to use the actual stone as a sort of press to print exact duplicates of the inscriptions. When that process was complete, the prints were sent to Paris for examination and study. Back in Egypt, shortly after he first arrived in 1798, Napoleon defeated the Egyptians. But soon afterwards, the British Navy defeated his battle fleet. He then conducted a land campaign to regain some of his honor, especially important since he knew he would be departing soon to return to France. Why? Well, the home front was deteriorating. He departed for good in late 1799, leaving behind a garrison of troops and most of the Commission des Sciences et des Arts. Oh, and he left the Rosetta Stone behind, too. These troops managed to withstand both British and Ottoman attacks for another 18 months. But, with no reinforcements, it was hopeless. In March 1801, the British landed at Arbucure Bay, near Alexandria. The French troops, along with the commission, marched northwards towards the Mediterranean coast to meet the enemy. They brought the stone and many other antiquities with them. Included in the collection were artifacts and biological specimens. Also, they brought along their work product, which was primarily notes, plans, and drawings collected and made by members of the commission. Most of the French troops were quickly defeated by the Brits, but a small force managed to retreat to Alexandria, taking the stone with them. As you would expect, 
the remaining small French force fell, but only after being surrounded and besieged. But even after their surrender, the French maintained that the artifacts, biological specimens, notes, plans, drawings, essentially everything collected by the members of the commission should remain in French hands. The Brits were going to have none of that. It was a surrender, after all. The British general, John Healy Hutchinson, rejected the premise of the French and withheld supplies to them until they gave in. Apparently, the Brits were on as much of a scholarly pursuit as the French had been, as they had brought along their own researchers. These researchers examined the, well, what was formerly the French collection, and were absolutely delighted. General Hutchinson claimed that all materials were property of the British Crown. No great surprise there. But the French told the Brits that they would rather burn all their discoveries than turn them over country before history. This, of course, and especially to the archaeologists and historians, was reminiscent of the destruction of the library at Alexandria, burned by Julius Caesar in 48 BC, which they thought to be true, but may have actually been a myth. More on that in a future episode. Anyway, the British researchers pleaded the case to General Hutchinson who finally agreed to allow items related to the natural history of the area to be considered part of the French scholar's private property. Even though the French and British had been fighting what seemed like, well, forever, honor and dignity still had some sway. The French claimed the stone to be included in this exception, but the general wasn't going to let it go that easily. He, too, was aware of its distinctiveness. Ultimately, they including the Ottomans, negotiated a settlement. The French then took the Brits down the back streets and alleyways of Alexandria, finally disclosing that the stone had been kept at the house of one of the French researchers, under carpets, in a closet, along with his personal luggage. It was then that the Frenchman revealed that he was wary of the soldiers from his own country, fearing that they would steal it if they knew where it was. A British colonel, Tompkins Turner, was tasked with personally escorting the stone back to England. This was accomplished via the recently captured French frigate Egyptine, with the stone arriving in February 1802. Under the order of the king, in this case George III, the stone was placed in the British Museum, where it has been kept almost without interruption over the 200 years since. It was here that new inscriptions were added that read, Captured in England by the British Army in 1801, and presented by King George III. In the museum, it has been part of a collection of ancient Egyptian monuments captured from the French expedition, including a sarcophagus of Nactanebo II, the statue of a high priest of Amman, and a large granite fist. The museum considers the stone to be its most popular artifact. In 1802, the Society of Antiquaries of London created four plaster casts of the inscriptions, which were given to the universities of Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh, and Trinity College in Dublin, all of this for study. Of course, they were all hoping to decipher the still unintelligible text. 
Shortly after the schools received copies, prints were made that were sent to scholars throughout Europe. The Greek text on the stone was the natural place to begin. Of course, ancient Greek was known to scholars. But as you would be correct in suspecting, the language wasn't exactly standardized throughout their empire. And this was true in Ptolemaic Egypt. Today, we have the benefit of many archaeological finds of papyrus with Ptolemaic Greek writing, but the 19th century scholars had few of these. What proved especially troublesome was jargon, most notably of the government and religious variety. It also didn't help that the scholars had less information on the historical context of the stone. Despite these hurdles, a potential translation from the Greek to English was presented by Stephen Weston to the Society of Antiquaries in 1802. At essentially the same time, a couple of printed copies of the stone were being studied in Paris, and they too wanted to claim that they were well on the way to translation. After all, many in France considered the stone to be stolen French property. A translation begun by Gabriel de la Porte de Thiel and completed by Hubert Pascal Imulahan was published in 1803 in both French and Latin. And you may be wondering why the Greek was translated to Latin. This served the dual purpose of lending credibility and ensuring their version would be studied by scholars everywhere, no matter their native tongue. Not to be forgotten, and at about the same time, a German scholar, Christian Henny, also translated the Greek to Latin. He completed his work in 1803. And this translation would prove to be more reliable than that from the French team. The British Society of Antiquaries published his work eight years later, along with a newer English translation. And remember, all of this work was for the Greek, an ancient language that was fairly well understood. Which brings me to the Demotic text. Fortunately, just prior to the stone's discovery, a Swedish scholar, Johann David Okerblad, was attempting to decipher a rarely seen script recently uncovered in Egypt. It was this script that would become known as Demotic. Okerblad called the script the Swedish equivalent of cursive Coptic owing to his theory that it was a written form of that ancient, but not as ancient, language. This was despite the script having few similarities with other known written forms of Coptic. In 1801, a French researcher, Antoine Isaac de Sassy, was corresponding with Okerblad concerning the still unknown, uninterpretable cursive Coptic when Sassi received one of the early prints of the Rosetta Stone. With the print in hand, Sassi quickly realized that the inscription on the stone was the same language that Okerblad had been studying. Sassi and Okerblad joined forces and set about attempting to interpret the text in the middle of the Rosetta Stone. They worked under the assumption that the text was alphabetical, not glyphical. In their translation logic, they attempted to identify the points where Greek names should occur within the still unknown script. By the next year, Sassi had identified five such names, specifically Alexandros, Alexandria, Ptolemaeus, Arsinohi, and what would turn out to be Ptolemy's title, Ephenes. 
At the same time, Okerblad published an alphabet consisting of 29 letters. As it would turn out, over half of his identifications were correct. He had followed the same logic as Sasi, using the Greek names and guessing their locations in the demotic text. So, with this work, the stone was essentially two-thirds translated, but the hardest part, the hieroglyphs, remained. But it wasn't as if the scholars were starting with nothing. In the 5th century AD, an Egyptian priest known as Hor Apollo wrote a work titled Hieroglyphica. This was a purported translation of about 200 glyphs. Later researchers took his work as gospel, but as it would turn out, it wasn't exactly accurate. His work, along with other similar translations, actually proved detrimental to the future understanding of the glyphs. Arab historians would later attempt the process. Dunan al-Mizri, a Nubian Islamic scholar in the 9th century, and Ibn Washiya, a 10th century Iraqi scholar, were the first historians to study hieroglyphs. They tried comparing the glyphs to what was to them a contemporary version of the Coptic language. This was the dialect used by the Coptic priest of their era. And the language wasn't without study by Western, meaning European scholars. Johan Bekans, a 16th century Dutch doctor. Athanasius Kitscher, a 17th century German Jesuit polymath and Johann Zoiga, an 18th century Danish archaeologist, all made translation attempts, and all were done in vain. That was, of course, until the discovery of the Rosetta Stone and the translation of the Greek and Demotic text. The stone, of course, proved to be the missing link since it provided what would quickly be seen as vital information. But there wasn't a single Eureka moment Instead, it progressed as an iterative process uncovered by a series of successive scholars, the proverbial shoulders of giants. Circling back, Sasi had been working on the demotic translation, but grew increasingly frustrated and scaled back his effort. But the work never left him completely, especially as a linguist. In 1811, while having a discussion with a Chinese student about a Chinese glyphical script, a thought occurred, and the seed of this thought had been planted some 14 years before, which would place it in 1797, some two years before the discovery of the stone. It was then that Joran Zoiga, the Danish archaeologist I mentioned a minute ago, suggested that the foreign names found in the hieroglyphs may be written phonetically. Which, and of course, hindsight is always better than foresight. Anyway, the suggestion makes sense. This is how languages tend to deal with foreign words. Sassi also remembered that in 1761, Jean-Jacques Bartimlimi, a French writer and linguist, had suggested that the characters enclosed in the glyphs were proper names. As a sidebar, Bartimlimi was the first person to successfully decipher two ancient extinct languages of the region, the Palmarine alphabet in 1754, then the Phoenician alphabet in 1758. So, whatever he said about the understanding of an extinct language, 
was spoken with a high level of authority. Sasi was contacted in 1814 by Thomas Young, a leader at the Royal Society of London, and Sasi advised Young to attempt to find glyphs that might contain Greek names, and when found, attempt to identify the phonetic characters in these symbols. Young heeded the advice, and in doing so, he noticed that the phonetic characters P, T, O, L, M, E, S were used to write the Greek name Ptolemaeus, B, I, N, G, O, Bingo. The rest came to fall into place. He also noted that these same characters resembled the same characters in the Demotic script. A total of about 80 similarities between the hieroglyphic and Demotic text on the stone. And this discovery was key as it had previously been thought that the two inscriptions were completely different from each other. The discovery then began to feed on itself, as up until this point, Demotic was thought to be completely phonetic, but now it was considered to be only partially so. It also contained pictograms, and these resembled, somewhat, the corresponding hieroglyphs. After this point, though, Young's progress stalled but he continued to correspond with others concerning his work. One recipient of his correspondence was Jean-Francois Chéon-Palion, a French Egyptologist and linguist. And what a time it was to be learned in both. Chéon-Palion obtained a print of the hieroglyphic and Greek inscriptions of the Philae Obelisk in 1822. This monument was created around 118 BC, during the Ptolemaic control of Egypt, and had been transported to England in the early 19th century. On it, the names Ptolemaeus and Cleopatra had been discovered in hieroglyphs and in Greek. The stone also had one curious idiosyncrasy. Various characters of hieroglyphs were surrounded by a carved oblong loop Champollion knew enough of the hieroglyphs to confirm that the loops contained the names of one of the Greek rulers of Egypt, in this case Ptolemy V. He studied these loops and discovered that some of the glyphs were the same between Ptolemy's loop and the other loops. He then determined that the glyphs in the loops phonetically spelled out the names of other Greek rulers of Egypt. Using this knowledge and a clever reading of the ideograms in other loops, he was able to decipher the names of the native rulers Ramses and Thutmose. Then, starting with this, and comparing the obelisk text to the Rosetta Stone, Champollion was able to identify the alphabet of phonetic hieroglyphic characters. Overall, he determined that the Egyptian hieroglyphic writing was a mixture of signs representing sounds, ideas, and words, not a common alphabet. Champollion's success in deciphering the Rosetta Stone solved the secret of hieroglyphs and allowed the world to finally read into Egyptian history. Champollion's essential discovery was that similar phonetic characters seemed to occur in both Greek and Egyptian names. His theory was confirmed in 1823 when he identified the names of pharaohs Ramses and Thutmose written in glyphs at Abu Simbel which are huge, ancient temples in southern Egypt, near the border with Sudan. So, to bring it all together, 
Champollion compared the glyphs on the stone to the Greek and demonic text on the stone and other artifacts, and also to the glyphs at other sites, and began the true deciphering. Using all these sources, Champollion was able to discover an ancient Egyptian grammar and hieroglyphic dictionary. Unfortunately, though, he died at the young age of 41 in 1832. After his death, but in the same year, his dictionary was published. However, the stone was still not completely translated, but scholars switched gears towards a greater understanding of the context of the text. An English translation of the text was not published until 1858 by the Philomethian Society at the University of Pennsylvania. And one final note on the text. The three languages are not word-for-word -word translations of each other. The current thinking is that the hieroglyphs were written for the priests, the demotic for the commoners, and the Greek, well, for the Greeks living in Egypt. Of course, since they are not direct translations, this made the translation into a modern language more difficult. The translation of the hieroglyphs continues to this day, providing new information about the life in ancient Egypt. As for the stone, it remained in the museum until 1917, when, in World War I, due to concerns over the bombing of London, it was relocated. So, where do you hide an object of this significance? Especially since your closet with rugs and luggage won't provide much protection. The Brits went deep, moving it, along with other valuable artifacts, to a tube station about 50 feet or 15 meters below ground. The stone would spend the next two years at the station near Halborn. Once the armistice was signed in late 1918, back to the British Museum it went. Over the next century, it only left the Isle once, in 1972, for about a month, and went to the Louvre, which of course is in Paris. And one more thing, what does the stone actually say? It was a monument, a stele in fact, that was erected after the coronation of King Ptolemy V and is inscribed with a date March 27, 196 BC. Actually, that's how the date gets translated. Obviously, they had no clue about the BC part. And, given the date, it was in Egypt when Christ was living in exile in Egypt. Its inscription establishes the divine cult of the new ruler. The decree was issued during an unsettled period in Egyptian history. It records that Ptolemy V gave a gift of silver and grain to the temples, perhaps to bribe the priests to support him. In return for the gift, the priesthood pledged that the king's birthday and the anniversary of his coronation would be celebrated annually and that the priests of Egypt would serve him along with their gods. It concludes with the instruction that a copy was to be placed in every temple inscribed in the language of the gods, aka hieroglyphs, the language of the documents, aka demotic, and the language of the Greeks, aka Greek. It also records that there was a particularly high flooding of the Nile in the eighth year of his reign, and he had the excess waters dammed for the benefit of the farmers. And that is the Rosetta Stone, and a good stopping point.
Join me next week when I'll cover the religion of ancient Egypt. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. The podcast has gotten a few more this week, and it leads others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.